Good morning, Harvest. Hey, can we thank Tay and uh, Lenny as they head off stage for leading us so well in worship? Um, If that worship set didn't give you any goosebumps or chills, I would just encourage you to just leave now and head right to the emergency room because there's something that is very uh, wrong with you. Um, Thank you uh, so much, guys, for leading us in that. Um, Hope you guys are doing well. Thank you for being here this morning. I hope you guys are at least enjoying the sunshine, even though it is still largely freezing outside. I'm not sure what the deal with that is. Uh, My boys, uh, I coach their soccer team, and we have games on Saturday morning, and the boys' game was at Lakeshore Baptist, and it was at 8.30 in the morning yesterday morning. And at 7.30 when I checked the weather, it was 34 degrees outside. And uh, at that moment, the book of Lamentations made sense to me for the first time. I was like, Lord, just take me to heaven. I no longer want to be alive. Like, this is brutal. Um, And then I do want to also say um, happy Mother's Day. I know Pastor Craig said that at the welcome. But uh, to all the mothers in the room, can we give the mothers a round of applause corporately as a church? Thank you, um, mothers. And... I would just say that as I get older and older, I am learning that motherhood is such a um, unique and and awesome calling, and it is not always glamorous. It is not always um, thanked like it should be, Um, but man, it is in how moms care and love for their children. Is that such a cool picture of God's love for us? And uh, so I would hope that if your mom is here and alive, that you would call her, that you would hang out with her, that you would spoil her, that you would tell her how much you love here love her because none of us would be here if it weren't for moms. Amen? Awesome. Um, If you have your Bibles, do me a favor, open to the book of Jude. We're going to be in the book of Jude, and some of you are looking at me like, I've never heard of that book before. It is very small. It is only one page long in most of your Bibles, and we're going to tackle the whole book this morning. And if you need help finding it, just go to the end of your Bible. It is right before the last book of Revelation. So it's a very small book right before Revelation that should help you find it. And uh, as Taylor mentioned in our worship set, the last four weeks, we've been in a series called Tearing Down Strongholds. And I would just encourage you, if you haven't followed along with this teaching series, go back to our website, check out the messages. They've been really, really impactful and awesome. And what we're doing is, is we're looking specifically at what are the strongholds in our lives? What are the things that trip us up consistently in our walk with God and with others? And in the first four weeks, we've looked at the stronghold of complacency, We've looked at addiction, we've looked at self-reliance, and we've looked at a grumbling or complaining spirit. So we are four weeks in, and we have eight more weeks left of this series. So we're just about a third of the way through. But with a series like this that is very, very practical and very, very convicting and can feel like heavy sledding sometimes, the best way I can describe it is when you're swimming, um, you need to every once in a while come up and take a breath or, or it's not going to go well for you. So what we decided to do today with it being a holiday weekend is to take a breath, step away uh, from this series for one week. And what we're going to do today, I hope is an encouragement to your heart, but I would also argue we're going to talk about one of the most timely things that we as Christians could today can talk about. And here's what we're going to get after in the book of Jude. It's this. We're going to answer this question. How do we rightly contend for the faith? What does it look like for us as followers of Jesus to contend for the faith of Christianity? Is that even something that we're called to do? What what does that look like? What, What does it mean for us to contend? And I would say you don't have to look very hard to see that our country and our world and our lives are all changing, right? 
Like, that's a thing. And, and I would say that the last 18 months, we've seen financial upheaval in our world. We've seen political upheaval. We've seen social upheaval. Things are changing rapidly at a rate that is faster than anything I've experienced in uh, my 35 years of life. And uh, I have so many conversations with people in this church who are concerned and they're worried. And what does this mean for Christianity? What does this mean for our faith? What does this mean for the church? How, how do we navigate what's happening in our world? And this is the question that the book of Jude hits on directly. In this present age, with our lives, what does it look like for you and me to contend for Christ? So if you have your um, Bibles open to Jude, look at verse one. Here's what he says. He says, Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, look what he says here. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So in verse three, Jude says, this is why I'm writing this letter. It's very, very clear. We don't have to wonder. He's saying, I am writing to, con to, to appeal to you to contend for the faith. And you need to understand, Jude is not writing to just pastors. He's not writing to just elders or ministry leaders. He is writing to a, a group of believers, a church. So he's saying that all of us carry a responsibility to contend for our faith in Jesus. So do me a favor, if you are, came with someone, turn to them and say, this includes you. None of us get to walk out of here today and say, this passage doesn't really apply to me. This is for all of us. But look at verse one again. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Christ Jesus. Jude actually gives the first way we contend for the faith right in his greeting, and here's what it is. Um, if we're going to contend for the faith, we need to live from a place of security. We need to live for a, from a place of security. Do you see what we're called in verse one? I, I don't want you to miss this. This is so cool. It says that we are called by God, that we are beloved or loved by God, and that we are kept by God. And I would just encourage you, if you take notes in your Bible, if you write in your Bible, circle those words because there's something really amazing about those words. Those adjectives, those things that describe us, they're not active adjectives, they're passive. These are not things that we are called to do. These are things that we take no part in, but that God has done for us. You have been called, you have been loved, you have been and are being kept by God. Like imagine if Jude started his letter and said, hey, to those who are following the call of God, to those that are choosing to love God and honor him as Lord, and to those who will continue to keep their faith in Christ, right? That would put all the pressure on us. The tone of the letter would be way different. But what Jude is saying is, no, 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 remember who you are, that our identity is rooted in the reality that we are called by God. And think about what that means that God in his eternal perfect plan of salvation included us and called us and invited us to be in his family, that you have been called by God, that you have been loved by God, and that you are being protected and kept for Christ. 
that there is nothing that can change in our lives or in our circumstances that can touch our identity in Christ. So my son, um, Bo, he's eight. He just turned eight last week. And for his birthday, um, I got him one of those um, like floor hockey kits. You know what I'm talking about? Where there's two goals and then there's some hockey sticks and then there's a, a ball that you play hockey with. And it's a terrible idea because I've got an eight-year-old and a six-year-old and they've already hit themselves in the head, you know, four times playing um, floor hockey. But he was all excited and wanted to play with me on Monday. And so on Monday, he came home from school and and, then he did his homework and did some other stuff. And then we were playing hockey together. And he's very, very new. He's never really played hockey before. So all of the fundamentals like shooting and how to hold the hockey stick, it's all very, very new to him. And we were messing around. I was trying to teach him. And all of a sudden, tears welled up in his eyes. And I said, Bo, what's wrong? Why are you sad? We're hanging out. You should be having fun. And he goes, Dad, I'm just really struggling. And I'm like, Bo, what's the issue? He goes, well, today in gym class, my team lost in ultimate tag. And then when I came home, I played video games and I lost in video games. And I'm not doing well in floor hockey. And he goes, dad, I'm just in a slump right now. And he starts crying. And I remember in that moment, like the first part of me was just jealous Like, how nice would it be if the most important thing in your life was what happened in ultimate tag in gym class, right? Like, I long for these simpler days. So, like, I'm trying kind of not to laugh. But then I get on my knees, and I give him a hug, and I say, Bo, I love you, and you're an amazing kid, and I'm so proud of you. You are so good at so many things. And listen, all of us go through slumps sometimes. All of us struggle. And if this is frustrating you, let's go outside and shoot hoops. Let's do something that you're good at, and and, and we can come back to this another time. Well, that's kind of what Jude is trying to communicate to the church right here. Like, remember who you are. You are loved. And there are someone in here today who the reason God had you come to church this morning was for you to hear that no matter how you walk in here, no matter how you feel about yourself in this moment, it doesn't change how God views you. That you've been called by God, you've been loved by God, and you've been kept for Christ. It's an awesome truth. Look at verse 4. He says this, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who, who were long ago designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse eight. He's gonna continue talking about these people. He says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh. They reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme in all they do and uh, they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, and at they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up foam from their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. How does Jude feel about these guys? Not great, huh? Like those are some tough words, but what he is doing to this church that he's writing to is is he's giving us the second way we contend for the faith, and that's this. It's that we need to look inwardly rather than outwardly. That our focus, if we are going to rightly live and contend for Christ, is our focus needs we need to look inwardly 
rather than outwardly. And what I mean is, is what Jude is doing is, is he is warning his audience against false teachers and false theology that lead people away from the truth of the gospel. He's saying there's already happening. There are people that are slipping into your midst and they are preaching a message that is very, very contrary to Christianity. And these are wicked men who do what they want, who are out for their own gain, and they are going to lead you astray. He says, the biggest issue facing the church is not from outside the church. It's from within the church and false teaching leading people astray. And church, we need to hear this message. The biggest danger we face today as a church will not be from outside of the church. It will be from within the church. And the truth is, is that most Christians that I talk to have this completely opposite. And I talk to so many people who are so scared and upset, and they think that the biggest threat against the church is going to come from Washington, or it's going to come from legislation, or it's going to come from what the public schools are teaching, or it's going to come from how culture is moving, they believe that the threat is going to come from the outside of the church rather than within. I talked with a man this last summer before the elections, a man that I love and I respect, um, but who I believe had this flip-flopped in his heart. And he said, hey, Cal, you know, if this candidate wins the election, Christianity is going to be illegal in our country in under two years, right? Convinced that the future of Christianity was dependent on an election. And listen, please hear me. I'm not trying to trivialize these things. Can legislation and things that come from Washington and our culture, can they impact our lives? Yes, but it is not the greatest threat that our church faces. The greatest threat the church faces is false teaching. And let me give, take a couple minutes to make this argument. And here's what I would ask you to do. If you're like, Cal, I'm not sure I'm buying what you're selling right now. Here's what I would ask you to do. Just read the letters in the New Testament. Read all of Paul's letters. Read Peter's letters. Read John's letters. Read the book of Jude again on your own. Here's what I will tell you. All of those letters, they have a primary concern for the church, and that is false teaching that is leading people astray right? The book of Galatians, the entire purpose of that book is that there was a church that was falling back into works-based salvation, right? And Paul says, listen, do you, you've been freed by Christ. Do not fall again to a yoke of slavery. Reject these people that tell you that you, you need to turn to works in order to be saved. And then to the Corinthian church, Paul's like, you guys are believing a false teaching that says what you believe and how you live can be separated, and you are running to rampant sin and it is false teaching and it is destroying your unity and it is destroying the church over and over and over again. The thing that the New Testament authors were concerned about was false teaching. Here's what you never hear them warn the church about, what's happening in Rome. You never hear them worry about what Nero decrees or what the laws are and here's why. Because they expected persecution. They're like, listen, look at how the world treated Jesus. We're his followers. Jesus told us that the world is going to hate us. So when we're hated by the world and when things get difficult, that should not be something that scares us. It should be something that actually solidifies our faith because we are walking in the path that Jesus has called us to. 
And I want to take a moment and talk about false teaching because I think this can get convoluted too. Um, False teaching is denying the majors of the faith. And in Christianity, there are major doctrines and there are minor doctrines. And by minor doctrines, I think there are things that churches can disagree on, but that we can both still love Jesus and love the Lord and be brothers and sisters in Christ and have unity in. And so let me give like a really specific example. My wife, Mary, she grew up going to Covenant Life Church in Grand Haven. And they're from the CRC denomination. And one of the things that their church did growing up is they would do infant baptisms and then they would do profession of faith as you got into the middle school and high school ages. That's how they did their baptism. Well, you know us at Harvest, if you've been at our church, we do believers baptisms. And when we look at the scripture, we see that baptism was for people who had accepted Jesus Christ, that it was a decision they made for themselves and it was their choice to identify with Christ. The CRC church in Covenant Life, we disagree on baptism but that is a minor how we do baptism. All of the majors we agree on, that Jesus is Lord, that salvation can be found in Christ alone, that the Bible is the word of God. So even though there's a minor disagreement, we can move forward together in love because we agree on the majors. And we can't fall into this trap that if you don't believe exactly what I believe, I can't have anything to do with you because that's its own major problem. But there are majors that you can't concede on. And I would argue that ever since the history of the church, these majors have been under attack by false teachers. And what I mean by majors is the the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? There are professors and, and seminaries and pastors who would deny that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that he was just a prophet or a great teacher, but he was not the eternal living son of God. And by the way, if Jesus was not God, then everything we believe fundamentally falls apart. There would be those that deny sin. There would be those that would say that salvation can be found through many avenues outside of Jesus Christ. The problem is, is that Jesus says that no man comes to the Father but through me. And if Jesus said that and it's not true, then Jesus is by definition a liar and a sinner and our faith falls apart. The idea of grace versus works, what the Bible is, is the Bible authoritative? Is it God's word or is it just a book written by human men who were trying to do their best but is full of myths, God's character? Like there are major things that have been under attack that will destroy churches. In many ways, it's the story of this place. Like this church was founded, I think, a little over 100 years ago and started as a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church that wanted to honor and glorify Jesus Christ, but through a long history of bad theology and false teachers. It's interesting. I remember when we first walked through this building as elders, considering purchasing it and moving our church home here. Um, You would walk upstairs to the youth room and where the offices were, and there were rooms that were dedicated to worshiping idols. There were idols upstairs that had mats that you could bow down and worship. And Jesus was mocked and the cross was taken down because they didn't stand for the cross or the resurrection anymore. And it moved very, very far away from Christianity. If we as a church are going to contend for the faith, the primary concern has to be, are we being faithful to the word of God? 
Are we holding fast to the gospel and are we a people who love Jesus and live out the values of the kingdom of God? Just this week, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, he wrote this. He said, the main way Christians can be a resource to the broader culture is by restoring the church to being a well-known community of forgiveness and reconciliation. And rather than being so concerned with what's happening outside of our control, I think it would be good for us to say, no, no, are we being the church and the people that God has called us to? Are we modeling the love of Christ? Are we modeling the forgiveness of Christ? Is this a place where broken people can find healing and can be embraced and can be loved? And by the way, the same thing is true for us on an individual, personal level too. The greatest threat to your walk with God resides in the sin in your own heart. It's the selfishness, it's the pride, it's the sin bends we have that we don't repent of and they take up a stronghold in our lives. Listen, the biggest threat to your growth in Christ is not your boss, it's not your job, it's not your government, it's not even your in-laws. Well, maybe it might be your in-laws, but if that's true, you can come see me after the service. Um, Our focus needs to be, are we living as people who model repentance? Are we broken over our sin? Do we live as if Jesus is truly Lord over our lives? Are we dying to ourselves daily, yielding to him as Lord? We need to look inwardly rather than outwardly. Look at verse five. And he says, now I wanna remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe and angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay, here's the next way we contend for the faith is we need to allow Jesus to be the righteous judge. We need to allow Jesus to be the righteous judge. And what Jude is doing here is he's saying, listen, remember that that, that Jesus punished and we see in scripture that God punishes sin, that he knows what's going on. He sees and he is fully capable uh, of giving righteous judgment and we can trust Jesus to do that. That doesn't need to come from us. And if I could be honest with you right now, this is something I'm not good at. It is really, really hard for me to wait and to let Jesus be the righteous judge. Because when I see someone do something that is wrong and they're getting away with it and it doesn't feel just to me and it doesn't feel right to me and I can't make sense of it, I get angry and I wanna call them out and I wanna be the one that that, that exercises judgment over them. I remember a few months back, there was something going on in my life in a relationship outside this church, but um, someone was being deceptive with me. And they had um, been less than truthful and what they were doing, it was just very, very clear to me that they were just doing everything for their own benefit. And they were being selfish and it was really, really bothering me because it felt like they were getting away with it. And I remember I was in my dad's office and I was just griping about it. Like, this isn't fair. How does no one see this? This isn't right. I'm being mistreated. Like I was really frustrated and trying to process it through with him. And my dad said something that like I absolutely needed to hear. He goes, Cal, actually what that person is doing is really, really smart. If you don't believe that God's real and that God sees. 
Do you see what my dad was trying to communicate to me in that moment? He's like, hey, Cal, how about you let God be the judge? It doesn't have to be on you to exercise judgment and just trust that God is alive and he sees, honor him, do what's right, and then trust God with how things land. And it was perfect because it was the exact thing I needed to hear. And church, here's what I would say. I think there is a righteous anger that builds up in us when we see a world that is spiraling away from God, isn't there? Like when we see and live in a culture that more and more glorifies what the Bible would call sin, and we feel like we're being marginalized, and we feel like, man, it's hard to live as a Christian today. There is this righteous anger that burns up and says, man, we need to do something. We need to say something. We need to fight for our rights. We're like, this isn't right. But there's a right way and a wrong way to handle that righteous anger. Look at verse 22. Look at what Jude tells us to do. He says this. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others show mercy with, uh, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. See what he says there? He, he says, listen, the way that we interact with a dark culture, it's not by screaming angry judgment at the culture. It's by engaging the darkness with love and by doing anything we can. And I love the phrase Jude uses, to snatch others out of the darkness. What the world doesn't need is loud, angry, judgmental Christians who can't understand why people who don't know Jesus live like they don't know Jesus. What our culture and our world needs is the hope of the gospel. That listen, we all have a sin problem. And we all have been wired and created with hearts that have an eternal longing that only our eternal creator can satisfy. But because of our pride and our sin, we spend so much of our lives running to dry wells to other things that we think are going to fulfill that longing. And there is no amount of pleasure or hobbies or money or success that can solve our eternal longing of the soul. But when we turn to God, when we get our eyes verticals, when we see the love that has been shown to us by Jesus Christ, all of a sudden that peace that we desire and that love and that longing is satisfied. Amen? We could all say that. So listen, loving a dark world doesn't mean that you shy away from sin. It's actually part of the good news and you can speak the truth, but it is not from a thing where I'm looking down on you, casting judgment because I'm disgusted by you. It's saying, no, 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 look what God has done for you. Look what we've been invited into. Come join this family. It's just like Taylor read today, like Jesus's yoke is easy and his burden is light and there is hope and life and love available. That we would snatch however we can those from out of the fire. And church, here's the other thing you need to hear. We can't retreat. We can't just worry about ourselves and get insular in our thinking and say, well, I'm just going to build this bubble that's Christian and insulate myself from the world. We're called to engage. So can I just ask you a really simple question? Who are you engaging with in your life for Jesus Christ? Like, is this idea of being a light for Christ, is this just theoretical for you? Is this a thing that just lives in your mind but doesn't live on the ground? Who in your life are you building a relationship with 
so that you might do what Jude calls us to and be a light and snatch those out of the fire. The call to be missional is one that we all have. Okay, look at verse 17. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. He's saying, don't be surprised by this. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But look at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. All right, church, the fourth way we contend for the faith is that we need to build ourselves up through prayer, to build yourself up through prayer. He's saying the way we build ourselves up in the faith is through prayer. The best thing you can do for your growth in your faith is to take prayer seriously and to build a life on prayer. And so here's the thing, because it's Mother's Day weekend, I'm going to use moms as an example. Do me a favor, if you're a mom in the room, can I just see you raise your hand? Okay, keep them up, keep them up. Now, here's what I would ask. Now, keep your hands up if you pray for your kids. Okay, this happened last night too. I have more hands go up when I say that. Like, how is that possible? You can put your hands down. But there's some moms in the room that won't admit to being a mom. But when it's like, do you pray for your kids? You're like, yeah, my kids definitely need prayer. And it's like, well, maybe that's because you don't admit to being a mom, right? Maybe I just solved your problem right there. Um, but yeah, I know, like moms, we, like, you guys pray for your kids. You pray for their health. You pray for their safety. You pray for their relationships. You pray that they have good, solid friendships. Like you pray for your kids all the time. And here's what I want to encourage you with. Do you know that God is so amazing and so loving towards you that as you pray for your kids, not only does God draw near to you and hear your prayers and answer them, but he's also building you up and transforming your heart in the process? That when you pray for your kids, God is teaching you some of the most important lessons that you could ever learn that guess what? That God loves your children more than you do. And he is teaching you to release to the Lord, the things you can't control. That's called faith. He's teaching you to trust him. He's teaching you to wait patiently on the Lord, which is one of the most important lessons any of us could ever learn. So, so what I wanna like remind you is don't be too results orientated when it comes to your prayer life. Because so often we're like, all right, I'm gonna pray for this thing and I'm really hoping God answers it this certain way. And listen, God does wanna hear our prayers and he does love us. But listen, God is also transforming our heart just in the process of us humbling ourselves and saying, God, you are good and I am not. You are in control and I am not in control. Your ways are perfect. My ways are not. So I'm going to trust in your plan. I'm going to bring my request to you, but I'm gonna trust that you know better than I do. Like he will change you if you commit to going to him in prayer. Do you wanna have more faith? Pray. Do you wanna grow in trusting God with the things that are outside of your control? Pray. Do you want help and endurance and victory over the strongholds in your life? Pray about these things. God is transforming you in that process. All right, look at how Jude closes the letter. Look at verse 24. He says this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Right, the fifth way that we contend for a faith church is that we worship from a place of security. 
is that we worship from a place of security. Man, I love how Jude ends this letter. And what's so cool is, do you remember how he opens the letter? He calls us called, loved, and kept by God. You see how he does this same thing in his closing? It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you as blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He's saying, listen, God will still keep you and he still loves you. And the fact that you are his child brings you great joy. There's not a moment where he regrets it. But then look what he says. He says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. And what I love is as Jude simply ends his letter with worship. Like that's what he's doing right there. He is ascribing worth to Jesus. He's saying he, all authority, all honor, all glory is his forever. And I bet there's a song he's singing in his head as he writes these words. He's saying, God is so good. What he has done for us is so amazing that he deserves all praise, glory, honor, and authority. Jude is worshiping God, responding to who God is, declaring his glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. So I just want to close with this one thought. Um, You know your worship matters, right? Do you know that? Do you know that how you worship is really, really important? And if you've been at our church for a, a long season of time, you know that we have had full weekends dedicated to us preaching and teaching on a theology of worship. And like, if I wanted to, like they're in my back pocket, I, I, I can, don't press me. But if I wanted to take the next hour, I could list off a hundred verses in the Bible that talk about making a joyful noise to the Lord, about declaring loudly the goodness of the Lord, about singing a new song, about clanging cymbals and lifting hands, and that worship is meant to be a re, uh, expressive thing as we respond to how great God's love is and who God is. Is, but I'm not going to go into all those verses because I don't have time. I just want to ask this one simple question. When you come into this place and when you worship with the family of God, does the way you respond to God in worship, does it communicate to God and to others that you're excited about him at all? Are you communicating not just with your voice, but with your hands and with your eyes and with the body that God has created you and given you? Are are you showing others and God himself who is here, his presence inhabits our praises, that we love him, that we're excited about him, that, that he is the desire of our hearts? Or have we settled for something that is a little stale and falls short of being genuine? This is something that I think we constantly have to remind ourselves because it's so easy to come in here distracted by everything that's going on in our lives, tired, worn out, and the result is is we don't give God our best. And I love that Jude ends his letter that's saying, listen, part of the way we contend for our faith, it's having worship be at the right place in our hearts. So let's do this, let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes. And we're gonna close with a a time of worship and and I just wanna give us a moment to prepare our hearts before the Lord. And I would ask you even now in the quietness of this moment, start ascribing to God through prayer the worth that is his. Tell God that he is holy. Tell God that he is righteous. Thank him for his love and his grace. 
Give him the honor, praise, dominion, and authority that is due his name. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this church. I thank you that we are a, a people who love your word. I thank you that we are a people who our identity is safe in that we have been called, loved, and kept by you. God, I'm so thankful that in your plan of salvation, you have included us. May that not be anything that ever causes us to boast, but that causes us to look up to you with humility and thankfulness. May these be the driving characteristics of our life. God, we love you. Would you continue to work in our hearts and transform us that we might rightly contend for you? It's in your son's name we pray, amen.